Hi everyone, I'm Tavi Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that explores some of the challenges and opportunities leaders face in today's increasingly complex, fast-paced, and interconnected global market. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavi Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that provides both virtual and in-person leadership keynotes, corporate trainings, and consulting services that will help you to improve the way you lead. To learn more about our services and what some of our clients have had to say about our work, visit our company's website at tanvirnasir.com. And while you're there, check out my award-winning internationally acclaimed leadership blog as well. And now, let's meet my guest for this episode, John Hagel. The opportunity in the future is not a given. It's not going to happen automatically. It requires action. It requires us to come together and to act together. And that helps to really drive a sense of, I can make a difference here. This is exciting. How can I contribute? There's little doubt that many organizations and industries are currently operating with a short-term focus, which unfortunately is informed more by a risk-adverse, fear-driven perspective rather than one that's meant to help stay the course in terms of achieving an organization's long-term objectives. But with so many social, economic, and global challenges before us, how can leaders move beyond their fears and instead embrace positivity to drive their organization's long-term growth and success? That's what I'll be asking my guest for this episode, John Hagel. In the past four decades that John has worked in Silicon Valley, he's worn many hats. From a successful entrepreneur and senior executive at Atari, to being the founder and leader of the Deloitte Center for the Edge, not to mention also being the co-chair of the Global Future Council on the Future of Platforms and Systems at the World Economic Forum. On top of this, John is also the author of eight books, including his latest, The Journey Beyond Fear, Leverage the Three Pillars of Positivity to Build Your Success which is what I'll be speaking to John about in this episode. Hi, John. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. So, John, there's little doubt that over the past few years, many leaders have been grappling with uncertainty and doubt about the future. And no question, the pandemic has only magnified many issues that we can no longer ignore. So I guess it's not surprising to see how much trepidation and fear we have for the future as compared to 10, 20 years ago, when thinking of the future was the best way to be hopeful about today. And in your latest book, you point out how there's a way for leaders to move beyond the short-term outlooks that are often driven by fear and uncertainty by embracing what you call the three pillars of positivity, which can help us reconnect with that more hopeful long-term view of the future. To help give some context for our discussion here, John, I was wondering if you could help by starting things off with a brief description of these three pillars and how they can help us move past our fear to achieve success. Okay, for sure. I mean, it, this is based on both my own personal experience. Uh, part of the book is a personal memoir of my own journey beyond fear, but it's also based on decades of research and I've come to believe there are these three pillars that can help us to make this journey beyond fear. And it starts with uh, the first pillar is what I call narrative, <clears throat> which is, um, it's very different from what I, most people uh, mean when they say narrative. Um, I'm focused, when I talk about narrative, I'm focused on what's your view of the future? 
And uh, do you have a call to action to others? And I think that can be powerful as a way to start to acknowledge or recognize that we're living in a fear. Um, and then the second pillar is a very specific form of passion. I call it the passion of the explorer, and we can go into more detail on what that means and how I came, came to find this passion. Um, but I think that it becomes a, a very strong fuel to drive us to achieving much more impact in spite of fear. And then finally, the third pillar is platforms. And again, I have a somewhat different definition of platforms. I'm focused on what I call learning platforms, but I believe this can be a significant accelerant um, in helping us as we, as we develop the, the passion uh, to motivate us to come together and achieve even more impact as we get more and more people participating on these platforms. So that's a high level view. So now that our listeners have a better understanding of these three pillars, John, I'd like to dive into the first one, which you call narratives. And there's a line you write in your book that really resonated with me on why this is so powerful. You write, narratives help us overcome our fear-driven passivity by giving us a sense of a future that is worth striving for today. By focusing us on an inspiring opportunity, they help us avoid the risk of simply becoming reactive to whatever is going on at the moment and spreading ourselves too thinly across too many fronts. And there's something important to point out in this quote, and that is that the narrative has to inspire opportunity or what you refer to in your book as opportunity based narratives. So how do we go about creating an opportunity based narrative, John? What are the elements it needs to have? And how can leaders go about creating one? Yeah, well, I'll start just by clarifying that actually I believe there are also threat-based narratives as well as opportunity-based narratives. And I think one of the challenges we have is we're increasingly living in a world that's dominated by threat-based narratives, which is when you look out into the future, it's focusing on the threats that are coming at us. And that tends to feed the fear. Uh, but you're right. I, I focus on opportunity-based narratives as a way to overcome the fear. And it's really um, looking ahead and trying to identify what are the big opportunities that we could achieve if we all came together. And it's a call to action. Again, I think it's important to emphasize the um, sense of agency here that in the way I talk about narratives, uh, the the opportunity in the future is not a given. It's not going to happen automatically. It requires action. It requires us to come together and to act together. And that helps to really drive a sense of, I can make a difference here. This is exciting. How can I contribute? So I think that's, and I think unfortunately for many leaders, we're still trapped in the threat-based narratives and, um, uh, not making enough effort to identify what are those really big opportunities out in the future that could motivate us to, to come together and have impact. And I think it's such an important point you just brought up now, John, that when we talk about these opportunity-based narratives, it's not something that should just be aspirational, but it should be actionable. Because ironically, in so many of my conversations with leaders, that's the problem they have is that, look, I don't know if I can create or communicate an idea or vision that's going to inspire others. 
And as you're pointing out, it's really not just about inspiring us. We don't want to encourage passivity that, oh, well, this is what we're leading towards. And you can just put yourself in neutral and just go along for the ride. But no, it's actionable, meaning this is what we could achieve if we all agree to commit our best efforts towards making it happen. Exactly. And and I'll throw in another complication. I talk about narratives at multiple levels. I mean, I think we as individuals all have a narrative that very few of us have made the effort to even articulate, much less reflect on it. I think companies or institutions can have narratives, although very few do. And um, the geographies, I mean, regions, cities, countries even can have narratives. And then movements can have narratives. So I think narratives play a powerful role at many different levels. And Again, I'll just complicate life uh, when we talk about corporate narratives. Um, again, many executives, when I talk to them about this, they say, oh, we have a corporate narrative. You know, we began in a garage. We faced incredible obstacles. We overcame them. We accomplished amazing things. And more to come. There's opportunity in the future. But my pushback on that is that's all about the company. And for me, the narrative is about who are the people you're addressing. And ideally, I think the first audience you should be addressing as a company is not the people within your company. It should be the people you're trying to reach outside your company, the customers, potential customers. What's the big opportunity for them that's really inspiring and motivating? And what action do they need to take in order to address that opportunity? It starts to communicate that you as a company really understand the customers at a very deep level in terms of what their aspirations and unmet needs are and being helpful to them in terms of call to action, which is not, by the way, buy my product. And that's the way you'll achieve the opportunity. It's an action that they can take, that they need to take in order to address the opportunity themselves. And if you're open to it, I can just give a quick example to make it concrete. I think the um, uh, very few companies that I know of have the kind of corporate narrative I'm talking about, but one that I think it illustrates the potential was Apple back in the 1990s, came up with a corporate narrative that was condensed into the slogan, think different. But when you unpack the slogan, it was you know, for decades, we had digital technology that took away our names, gave us numbers, put us in cubicles, made us cogs in a machine. Now, for the first time, there's a generation of technology that can allow us to express our unique individuality and potential. But it's not going to happen automatically. You need to think different. Will you think different? And it was so powerful that I think it's the reason why for many people, Apple became the equivalent of a religion. They were speaking to them in such a powerful way about an unmet, unaddressed opportunity. I'm glad you brought this up, John, as this is something I wanted to discuss with you next. But I do want to highlight something you just mentioned, and that is how there are four levels of narratives. Those are personal narratives, institutional narratives, geographical narratives, and movement narratives. As I'd like to talk to you about the other two pillars in your model of how we can move from fear towards positivity to drive success, I'd like to focus on the first two levels, starting with the first one of personal narratives. 
Now, there's an interesting contradiction to this one, as while this narrative is what we use to shape our lives and what we hope to accomplish, the focus of this narrative is actually about more than us. It should be something that impacts and inspires those around us. So I was wondering if you could clarify this, and how do we fashion a personal narrative that has an outward focus that motivates others to join us in accomplishing what we want to achieve? No, uh, I don't want to suggest it's easy by, by any means. It's, it's very challenging. But I think the starting point is just making the effort to articulate in your own mind, what is your personal narrative? I mean, in, at least in my experience, very few people have done that. And when I work with people on this, what I find, what they find is that actually when they look ahead into the future, their view of the future is primarily driven by threat. And because it's driven by threat, they don't have a call to action to others because they can't rely on others. They're too, they're too afraid. They have to do it all themselves. It's all on them. And so I think that becomes an aha moment. Oh, my God, I'm becoming isolated. I'm becoming consumed by this fear and threat. What is a really exciting opportunity that would really, you know, get me moving in a powerful way and take risks that... I'm not prepared to take at this point. But if I can find that exciting opportunity, that opportunity that excites me, chances are pretty good that the opportunity will excite others as well. And if I'm really excited about an opportunity, I am going to start to realize that I'm going to get achieve that opportunity much more rapidly and successfully if I bring others together to help me address that opportunity. And they will do it because they'll be as excited about it as I am. So I think, again, it's a process of reflection and evolution of a narrative to really shift from threat to opportunity. And then as you, as you get really excited about an opportunity, to realize that there should be a call to action to others, not just for you. You know, what's interesting, too, I found when I was reading about this level of narrative is how it really does fight the tide against the zero-sum game notion that threat-based narratives tend to have us focus on, that in order to address an issue or address a problem, I have to give up something to basically level the playing field or to solve this issue or problem. Whereas this one really gets us to look at it more from the vantage point of how do I create an idea or a goal or something I want to achieve that invites people in. It invites them to be a part of it because I'm not only going to gain something from it, but you're going to gain something from it. Maybe because I'm starting with that outwards focus on what they're starting to gain, I'm pulling myself along with to gain something from that as well. No, absolutely. I'm a strong believer that emotions can be contagious and that uh, the more you can bring other people together, the more you can cultivate really powerful emotions that will help to, to overcome the fear. So it's um, a key part of the process that I'm, I'm highlighting in the journey is not don't try to make the journey just by yourself, bring others together. Absolutely. So, John, now that we have this clearer understanding of personal narratives and how to go about creating one, I want to ask you about the next level of narratives, institutional narratives. This is the narrative that I think most leaders are familiar and comfortable with, as it's the one you use to explain how the organization got where it is today and what they hope to achieve in the future. 
And I think a lot of our listeners would understandably equate an institution's narrative with its purpose, but you write in your book how these are actually two different things. So, John, why is an institution's narrative different from its purpose? And with that understanding, how should leaders go about creating theirs? Yeah, again, a, a strong message for, for the book is when you're talking about an institutional narrative, start with the people you're addressing outside the company. Who are you, who are you trying to have impact with and, and create value for? And what is the big opportunity for them? And what actions do they need to take? That provides context then to say, okay, if that's a big opportunity for them and the actions they're going to be taking, where and how can we as a company be helpful to those customers in addressing that opportunity? And that begins to define the purpose because again, definitions differ, but for most people, purpose is about what is our purpose as a company? What is the thing we're trying to achieve? And that's great. I think that's important, but it only matters in the context of what's the value for others. I mean, if you're just trying to do something because you like doing it, great, but it better serve the needs of others. And so start with that. What are the needs of others? What's the big opportunity for them? And then where can, how can we frame the purpose for ourselves? So it, it requires, I mean, it's challenging on multiple levels. I think in a world of fear, we tend to be very short-term in our focus. And so we don't look out into the future, at least in an explicit way. And um, this requires looking out into the, you know, not just a year or two, but a decade, two decades, and really um, looking at it from the viewpoint of the customers, not from your own viewpoint. And that's also challenging because if you're driven by fear, you tend to just focus on your own needs and interests and forget about anybody else's. John, I'd like to move on to the second pillar of positivity and how it can help drive our success But before we do, I'd like to share this message from our sponsor. If you're looking to build a profitable side hustle that also impacts people, then you need to look at becoming a certified leadership coach with Giant. If you don't already know, Giant has been in the leadership space for over 13 years. They used to own and operate the John Maxwell brands. They ran the LeaderCast conferences where Jim Collins, Henry Cloud, Malcolm Gladwell, and Simon Sinek were regular speakers and a lot more. They have over 500 coaches working in over 127 countries, and their coaches are being hired by companies like Pfizer, Chick-fil-A, Delta, and more. And yes, you can do this too. Giant literally gives you everything you need to start your own leadership coaching business from scratch. You get hands-on training from top-level coaches to learn the exact methodology and tools that six-figure coaches are using an all-in-one online platform to run your entire coaching business, even if you want to work 100% remotely. And you'll get to join a thriving community of coaches from around the world. To get started, Giant is hosting a coaching business workshop to help you learn the ins and outs of how to build a successful coaching business, even if you're just starting out. This workshop is 100% free and you can reserve your spot by going to giant.tv slash Tanvir. If you're ready to impact people and get paid to do it, go to giant.tv slash Tanvir. 
So, John, I'd like to discuss with you the second pillar of positivity we need to employ on our journey of moving beyond fear. And you call this pillar the passion of the explorer. So obviously this one, it's not as obvious or intuitive for us to understand what it entails. So I was wondering if you could walk us through this pillar of positivity, in particular, challenging some of those notions we have when we think of passion and how this builds on what we discussed so far about using narratives to help us move beyond fear and apprehension to instead see opportunity and hope. Yeah, well, it's all connected because I, I start with narrative because I think that process of looking out into the future as an individual and saying, what's the opportunity that really excites me can open up the, um, the, uh, the passion that's within, I believe, within all of us that's waiting to be uh, discovered and cultivated. And so as you begin to see the opportunity that excites you, um, it can provide the basis for the passion. Uh, and again, I'm talking about a very specific form of passion that came out of research. It was basically, I, you know, I believe we're in a world of mounting performance pressure. And so I was looking at environments where you see sustained extreme performance improvement. And what I found was that they were very diverse environments around the world. But in every environment, the participants in those environments had this specific form of passion that I call the passion explorer. And again, you know, people use passion so loosely, it can mean anything from just being very emotional to very excited or whatever. The people who have this specific form of passion, number one, they have a long-term commitment to being in a specific domain. They're not just passing through. They're not just excited because they can spend a week or two. They're, they're there for, for life or the foreseeable future. And they're committed to having more and more impact in that domain, not just being in the domain, but having increasing impact. That's what excites them. And then second element is they have uh, what I call a questing disposition, which is when confronted with unexpected challenges, people with this passion get very excited. This is an opportunity for them to have even more impact. How could they address this challenge? So they're excited about it and they're looking for these challenges. And then the third element is a connecting disposition, which is their reaction when confronting these challenges. The first reaction is who else can I connect with who can help me get to a better answer faster? So these people are extremely well connected, constantly looking for help and in getting to that higher level of impact. So it's ultimately all about increasing impact in a very specific domain that really excites someone. It's not just they're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do or you know, the most rewarding thing to do in terms of financial. No, they're excited about it. And that's what drives them. John, as you were describing this pillar and in particular describing this form of passion that you've seen in the research that these particular types of leaders and employees have, it got me thinking about some of the ideas I've shared with leaders through either my keynotes or my corporate training sessions and how I'd point out how those leaders we worked with who brought out the best in us did so because they cared. They cared about the work. They cared about the goals they set out for us because it mattered. And when I think back to what you shared when talking about the personal and institutional narratives, I could see that thread running through this. 
I mean, we've all seen those leaders who get excited about what they see in store for what we can accomplish. And it's hard not to get swept up in their enthusiasm in large part because we see a vacancy of that today where a lot of the focus is on short-term gains that really only benefit a few. And as you just pointed out in your description of the passion of the explorer, this passion makes them committed to the long-term. They're in it for the long and This isn't just, well, because right now, this is what's popular. This is what's in vogue. And everyone's jumping on that bandwagon and I want to get in there. This is something that they see a long-term drive in. And what's more, it's not like they're coming in expecting to be the expert. They're going in saying, I want to continue to learn. I want to continue to stretch and push myself because I see this as being something that I want to be invested in the long run, but I want to see myself evolve and grow in the process of committing myself to this endeavor. No, absolutely. And longer conversation, but I've come to believe that most of our leaders and institutions are profoundly suspicious of passion. Passion is something that if you have it, you should pursue as a hobby at home. But when you come into work, you just do the assigned tasks, follow the manual. And passionate people ask too many questions. They take too many risks. They deviate from the script. Who wants passionate people? And I actually did a survey of the U.S. workforce and found that at most 14% of U.S. workers have this form of passion about their work. And I'm actually surprised it's as many as 14% because Again, I think our institutions are designed to to crush that passion versus draw it out and encourage it. And I'll just say it has many implications, but we're talking about leadership. One of the big shifts that I see that's going to be required if we're really serious about cultivating this passion is the, the mark of a strong leader today is someone who has an answer to all the questions. No matter what the question, you can count on the leader to have an answer. I believe the mark of a strong leader in the future is the one who has the most powerful and inspiring questions and who will freely admit they don't have an answer and ask for help. And that starts to communicate to the organization. First of all, it can inspire them because these are really interesting questions and may imagine what we could achieve if we could come up with answers. But at a more fundamental level, it communicates, number one, that questions are not only okay, they're necessary. We need more questions. And it's okay, not only okay, but necessary to ask for help, to acknowledge that you don't know the answers and ask for help. That starts to draw out more of this passion. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, Let's see what questions really excite me and where I can ask for help. You know, John, as you were describing the current environment in many workplaces, I actually could visualize the number of our listeners just going, yes, thank you. Someone's finally saying it because I've had conversations with so many people who've said they're brought into organizations because they show that they have an unorthodox way of looking at things. They're clearly very creative. We want you to come in and challenge things and get us thinking in new ways. But like six months in, they're like, okay, can you just follow what's in the manual? Look, there's a little bit more to this than you realize. So if we start doing what you're suggesting, it'll upturn the apple cart. It'll cause all sorts of problems. So why don't you just stick with what we're doing right now and we'll 
bench it for a future pilot project or something. And as you said, it just gets beaten out of you that the very thing that you're encouraged to come into the workplace and share and push and challenge. And as you pointed out, question, right? Ask those questions and don't just make assumptions. Well, this is what's the norm and this makes sense. But question, is there a better way? Is there something we're overlooking? The fact that we don't want people to question it, it just takes that out of them that, well, why am I going to be invested in this? If no one wants to hear what I have to say, even if it's just questioning to understand, is there not a better way to do this? Is there an untapped opportunity we're overlooking here? No, and it, it has so many different implications and dimensions to it. I'll be somewhat controversial and talk for a minute about um, the whole topic of diversity. You know, it's become the buzzword in the business world. We need more diversity. And, um, you know, companies are beginning to add the numbers of how many uh, different, uh, you know, ethnic groups, genders, races, whatever that we have um, around the table. But, and first of all, I think the reason most of them are doing it is because they think it's the right thing to do. Um, but then the message that, and I'm going to generalize, but I think broadly the case is when you get all those diverse people around a table, the message to them is follow the leader, become as, as, as much like the leader as you can. And typically the leader is an older white guy. <laughs> you know, try to try to emulate this older white guy as much as possible. And it's leave that diversity back, you know, don't, don't, but to me, the key, and, and certainly in the, in the world of passion, they're, they're people who have passion are constantly challenging each other. And the reason I think we need diversity is not just because it's the right thing to do, it's the necessary thing to do. The only way we're gonna get to better answers faster is if we have more diversity around the table and we're encouraging them to challenge us and ask the questions. <laughs> so I think that's a big opportunity. A hundred percent agree with you there, John. Okay, so we've covered the narrative pillars, John, and we've covered now the passion explorer. I'd now like to look at that last pillar of positive emotion that is learning platforms. Now, if you've been listening to my podcast or reading my leadership blog, you'll know that learning is something that's near and dear to me. So again, to set things up here for our listeners, John, what do you mean by learning platforms? And with that understanding, how do we go about creating platforms where we can share, collaborate, and learn more effectively in a way that fuels growth and hope for the future? Yeah, well, I, again, long a lot of detail here, but it's, um, I think it's a huge untapped opportunity. I mean, everybody's talking about platforms today. We have platforms everywhere, but typically they're either what I call aggregation platforms, which are helping to support short-term transactions or their social platforms, just helping us to connect with friends and family, et cetera. What's missing is what I call learning platforms. And here again, I hasten to define what I mean because when I talk about learning platforms, most people say, oh, you're talking about online courses and training programs. <laughs> and so no, <laughs> no, in a rapidly changing world, the most powerful and necessary form of learning is learning in the form of creating new knowledge that never existed before. And you can't do that in a training room or listening to a lecture. You have to do that through action and coming together with others so that you can learn together about how to get more and more impact in un unexpected ways and situations. And so 
to me, the key missing thing is what if we had a platform where the primary design goal of the platform was to help all the participants to learn faster together through action? What would that platform look like? And so that's to me a, a missing element. And I, you know, there are many different dimensions to it, but one that I'll quickly highlight is, and it's a key theme in the book, is the notion of if you're really serious about learning in the form of creating new knowledge, no matter how smart or talented you are as an individual, you're going to learn a lot faster if you come together into small groups. I call them impact groups, but typically it's between three to 15 people. And these people form deep trust-based relationships with each other. And they're constantly on the one side supporting each other, but also challenging each other. And so in my view, the learning platforms that I'm talking about, the core unit of the learning platform would be a shared workspace for these small impact groups to come together and uh, interact with each other, but then helping to connect those small groups into broader networks so they can learn faster from each other. Yeah, it's really a fascinating chapter. And I absolutely love this idea that, and I agree with you, it shouldn't be about how diverse your online learning catalog is and so forth, because then all you're doing is regurgitating existing knowledge, as opposed to, like you said, discovering those untapped knowledge pools where we're getting new insights and new understandings that are going to fuel both action and growth for the future. No, absolutely. It's just, um, again, I, I don't want to dismiss learning in the form of shared, you know, sharing existing knowledge. But to me, the, the missing element here, and the, again, in a world that's rapidly changing, we need to accelerate our creating new knowledge. How do we do that? And by the way, it's not just um, in research labs or product development. It's throughout the entire company. Everything from janitors in, you know, who are taking care of facilities to procurement people to uh, you know, uh, salespeople, every part of the organization is facing unforeseen situations and needing to create, deliver more value and impact in those situations. And that's learning that has to occur throughout the organization, not just in, in the research labs. Absolutely agree with you on that point, John. Absolutely agree with you. Uh, so, John, to wrap things up here, I'd like to address the current global climate. It seems like many decisions and choices being made by organizations and their leaders are being done from a risk-adverse, fear-driven vantage point, though I expect some leaders will argue it's more cautionary than fear-based. But I think we can all agree that there's not a lot of hope and excitement out there about the future. And granted, with issues like persisting racial inequality, climate change, and what remains to be seen as the long-term consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's easy for us to excuse ourselves for not being hopeful or optimistic. But as we all know from history, and maybe even personal experience, improving things for the better doesn't come from efforts born out of fear, but from those that challenge the way things are because we honestly believe we, with the help of others, can indeed make things better. So what final message would you like to share with our listeners to help them push back against this seemingly endless tide of fear and uncertainty and instead embrace a more positive, hopeful approach to what they can achieve through their leadership? <laughs> wow. Well, I, you know, one thing I, I share is some research that I did on um, 
performance of companies, public companies in the U.S. and went back to 1965 until today for all public companies in the U.S. I took as the measure of performance return on assets. It turns out over the 50 plus years, um, return on assets has basically collapsed. It's gone down by 75%. So this whole notion of being cautionary and just doing what we've done before, that's what's the result. And I think that, you know, I participate in discussions and companies all the time about risk assessment. And everybody talks about the risk of what if we do this, the risk of what if we do that. Nobody's talking about what's the risk if we don't do anything. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Nobody's talking about that. And that to me is the highest risk of all uh, because the world is changing at a profound, profound level. And we need to find ways. And again, I'll say that in this big shift that I've been studying, the way the world global economy is evolving, on the one side, it creates mounting performance pressure. But on the other side, at the same time, it's creating exponentially expanding opportunity. We can create so much more value with far less resource, so much more quickly than ever before. But if we're driven by fear, we can't even see those opportunities, much less have the motivation to pursue them. So I think what we all need is to recognize that there are incredible opportunities out there that we're not even seeing, but um, they're there waiting to be addressed. Completely agree with you, John, on this. And I'll admit there are days where it's hard to be optimistic or hopeful, but after reading your book and having this understanding that these three pillars of positivity and how to employ them so that it empowers us to focus on what's within our means to influence and impact so as to change the direction of things and hopefully be a catalyst to drive positivity has certainly given me some reason to feel hope and excitement again for a better, brighter future. So thanks for the thought-provoking conversation, John. I really enjoyed this. No, it was great, great interaction and uh, a lot more to be discussed. I, I hope that people will find a be motivated to, to find the book and read it because there's a lot more in there. An interesting look at how we can move past our fears in order to not only become more successful in our efforts, but also to make a positive influence and impact on those you lead as well. If you'd like to learn more about John's work and his book, The Journey Beyond Fear, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC. It's also a great way to share our podcast with your colleagues and friends as they can not only check out our past episodes on our podcast page, but they'll find links to subscribe to our podcast on all the major streaming platforms. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review my leadership podcast on your preferred podcast platform to help support our podcast and encourage others to check us out. Now, if you've been enjoying the insights I've been sharing here on my podcast and would be interested in having me share them with your team and organization, either through a leadership workshop or a keynote at an upcoming event, I'd like to invite you to fill out the contact form on our website at tavernasir.com so we can start that discussion. You can also check out the speaking page and workshop page on our company website to learn more about my speaking services and the kinds of topics I cover. And with that, I'm Tavin Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.